Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. I want to run a couple of faith stories off you just to see what your reaction to them might be. But the first one was this. There was an article in the, in the Washington Post that was titled, uh, Her son shot their daughters 10 years ago. Then these Amish families invited them in as her, uh, invited her in as their friend. And if you may have known the story, it was in 2006 where Charles Roberts walked into an Amish community and shot a, shot a bunch of children in that church. And the thing that shocked the world around them was that this community that had been so terribly ripped apart by his actions uh, went and extended forgiveness to him and to his mother uh, in the years that followed that. And many people would look at that and go, well, how, the, how the heck could they... How, they, how could they do that? How could, how could they have the faith to do that? So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is a, 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 he was a young guy at the time. It was a while ago now, back in the 1700s. But, but it was a, a young guy called Will, William Wilberforce. And he was, he was a bit of a superstar, particularly in the British Parliament. There by 21, is a member of Parliament, lives a pretty crazy non-Christian life. He, he liked to live it up. He was the son of a wealthy merchant. And Wilberforce, as it says in his biography, uh, when he converted to Christianity, joined a leading group known as the Clapham sect, and he was persuaded to lobby for the abolition of slavery. And that became a lifelong pursuit for him until in 1833, uh, uh, an act was passed giving freedom to all the slaves in the British Empire. Um, Wilberforce then went on to encourage Christian missionaries to go to India. He retires from politics in 1835. The bill is finally a past that frees all slaves, all slaves, not those that were just in existing slavery in 1833 and he dies just a few years later. So the question is, how do you react when you see people of that magnitude of faith? And for some, or maybe for the best way that we could think about reacting to people like that is, Thinking of the way that people that don't have faith might react to that. And I think it's one of two different responses. Certainly in the, in the realm of this Amish community, people look at that and they say, you know what, like that faith is just, faith is just a trick. Faith is just something that, you know what, that's a crutch for them to, to, to just get through the tragedy and the horror uh, that they've been through. You know, faith is something that, that, that just, it just helps them out a little bit. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you get people that look at that and see the lives of Wilberforce and say, that was just, that's not faith, that was his talents. And that was just who Wilberforce was. He was just a driven sort of, he was an A-type personality and he just happened to apply it to slavery, right? And so both views make a, a very big mistake. And the mistake is this, that we reduce faith down to this, that we think faith is either a trick or a talent. That faith is something, it's, it's, it's the superior view that, you know, I'm a, I'm a self-actualized, rational person, so therefore faith, you know, that is for those that need a bit of a crutch to get themselves through life. And then you have the inferior view that says, William Wilberforce, I can never have a faith like that. And that what we're going to discover in this series is that is exactly the sort of faith that God wants you to have. And more importantly, that faith is neither a trick nor a talent. Faith is something that you grow. We're going to talk about the elements as to how you grow your faith, the the core DNA elements. That's what DNA is, the building blocks of all of organic life. 
DNA, there are some core elements that we're going to discuss this morning. But I want you to get this, that particularly this morning, if you're a person that would say that you're not of faith, maybe you're a person that comes from those perspectives, maybe you're a person that's checking out Christianity, maybe you're a person who feels like you need more faith this morning. The great truth is faith is something that you grow. And Jesus knew that. He knew that. He was actually being cheeky about it. Have you ever thought of Jesus as being cheeky? I like thinking of Jesus as cheeky. I can relate to that. Because you see here in... In one of the verses before uh, what, what we've just heard from the scriptures there in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, if, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow and is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, now if you're old school, oh ye of little faith, <laughs> right? But that's the problem with the translation is you miss Jesus Jesus' cheekiness, because little faith, there, oh ye of little faith, that phrase is actually one word, it's this. I need it on the screens because I can't say it properly. Oligopistoi. <laughs> it's one word, and you know what it means? Jesus was saying it was a nickname. Little faith. And you'll see it in Matthew 8 and Matthew 16. He's constantly calling his disciples oligopistois, little faith. We go, oh ye of little faith. No, Jesus is saying little faith because isn't that the issue for the disciples and isn't that the issue for us little faiths this morning? That whether it's those great tragedies or the great adventures of life, this is the question for you and I this morning. The thing when it comes to faith is we're asking this question, when the rains come down and the floods go up, hey, some of you already started seeing it, we're asking, can I cope? Can I cope? Can I handle this? And am I going to survive this storm? And Jesus knew that. And what I love about it, he's got a cheeky love. A cheeky love that endearingly says, oh, you little faiths. Don't you know you get worried about what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll wear? That was written like 2,000 years ago. Isn't that exactly what we're all worrying about this morning? (laughs) Will, Will my job continue? Will my business continue? Um, do I look right? Am I, am I dressed right? Will I be accepted? Will I be part of that? Will I serve? Isn't that the issue for us? And Jesus understood that brilliantly. The guy's a genius. And so he calls his boys little faiths because he understood this. He said, he's saying, I'm calling you little faiths and I'm preaching this sermon, the greatest sermon that was ever written, the Sermon on the Mount, all of the context of of. of, of what happened before what we've just read this morning is one of the most fundamental ethical pieces of brilliance that the world has ever seen, the Sermon on the Mount. And if, if I was a big theological person and I was doing big, deep Bible study, here's my version of what the Sermon of the Mount would be. The Sermon on the Mount, really, you ready for theological language? The Sermon on the Mount is if you're a person of really, really big faith, this is what you would do. If you're a person of really, really big faith, this is what you would do. If you're a person of really, really big faith, this is what you would do. That's my summary of the Sermon on the Mount, theologically. (laughs) So you see things like someone backstabs you at work and ruins your reputation. You would ask them, how could I help you? How can I serve you? How can I be good to you? Someone who is your arch enemy, you would look at how you might be able to bless them. Uh, Someone asks you to walk one mile, hey, no, I'm going to walk two. Um, that you don't just give 
the percentage and people thinking when Adrian does his talks, is it this or is it this? No, it's Jesus just says, I'll just give as much as I can because I trust my heavenly father will continue to provide. Like we all feel this tension, right? Jesus is saying, if you're a person of big faith, this is what you would do. Can you imagine if you woke up every morning with that sort of faith? Sort of faith where you don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear or what is happening in your life. There's no stress. There's no anxieties. There's no worries. There's no concerns. There's braveness. There's boldness. There's courage. There's adventure. All because of this, that God's desire for you is that you would have a big faith. That you would be a person of big faith, little faiths. And it's not something that is a trick or a talent. It's something that you can grow. You can grow. And that's why we're going to look at the DNA of faith in this series. Because no matter where you are, whether you haven't started a relationship with God or you've just started your relationship, or some of you have been in relationship with God for 50, 60 years, this is for you too, little faiths. (laughs) Because... Faith is something that you can grow. Part of the problem with the Sermon on the Mount is it sounds so familiar. We've heard it a million times. We've sung the songs. It doesn't change us. It doesn't impact us. But let me share with you really quickly what we're going to look at in this series because uh, we're going to set some pillars down in this church of five things that you'll see over and over and over again in the Bible. You can't find verses for this. It's just an observation not only in the Bible of people that had big faith, but in pastoral ministry. But it's things like this. It's things like practice teaching, purposed relationships, personal disciplines, practical service, pivotal circumstances. They're the five things that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks through into March. Five things, the five core elements of the, of the this is the DNA of faith. They seem to appear time and time again when you look at biblical examples and pastoral examples of people who had a big faith. God wants that for you. And here's what we've discovered when, when you look at these things is that, that what I want to talk about this morning in practice teaching is that time and time again as a pastor, when, when you ask people their story about what was, what was different for them, what changed them, it was that they, they had heard about God, they'd listened to the word of God, they'd read a bit of the Bible, but it was only until they moved into a context where they practiced the teaching of Jesus that their life really began to change. Have you guys found that? It's only when they practiced the teachings of Jesus that their life really began to change. And here's why. There's something powerful when it's more than just hearing. And that, and that is this, that God's desire is that, like any parent, that he would want you to move into a relationship with him that is based on trust, not obedience. I mean, any relationship with a parent when it begins feels like it's just obedience. Your parents tell you not to cross the road. Like, oh my goodness, you're trying to ruin my fun. What are you doing? I want want freedom. And as a child, you fail to realise the dangers that are ahead of you, and it's exactly the same spiritually. We People approach Christianity and they think that it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. And yes, there are some do's and don'ts, but... God is not trying to ruin your fun. God is constantly trying to move you into a relationship of trust in him. And in fact, if, if you don't want to read the whole Bible, I've summarized it for you. Um, but basically, basically, the whole problem with humanity and God and that whole relationship was a breakdown of trust. It wasn't obedience. We think it was, oh, Adam, Adam had a bite. <laughs> You know, he's disobedient. It wasn't that. God, God said, there are things that I've ordained in the world, Adam, that... 
that just are the way they are and I need you to trust me in that. Don't need to know why. You just, you've got to trust me. And so all the problems that have, that have gone wrong with humanity is, is, is when we haven't trusted God and, and humanity's gone a little bit crazy. I mean, it's like saying to a three-year-old, I trust you in the kitchen with a bowl full of flour. <laughs> sin, is, sin is the flour on the walls. It's, it's what happens when God says, have it your way. And so the kitchen got so messy that God said, look, we've, we've got to rework this trusting. There's got to come to be a point in time where what you have to learn is that you have to trust me. And isn't that the issue for all of us? Because every great relationship we know is based on trust. Every great relationship is based on trust. It's, it's like that in a marriage, you know. Someone doesn't... Imagine if you had a relationship where someone, someone says to you... Uh, you know, if, if, if you heard from your wife today and it's been five minutes since you have a phone call and then you get paranoid and freak out and run back and call them on the phone again. No, a great relationship of trust. Someone says, have you heard from your wife today? It's like, well, no, but I trust her. Or isn't the most beautiful relationships the ones of like a father and a son and he's standing outside the school gate and it's, uh, it, it's 3.20, is your dad going to be here? And, and he's like, well, he normally picks me up and, and I know he's a little bit late, but he'll be here. I know it. I trust him. Every great healthy relationship is based on trust, not just obedience. And if it's true of our human relationships, that is the type of relationship that God wants to have with you. That with whatever you are facing this week, as you move into some of the challenges, little faiths, that you are facing this week, that he wants to be a relationship that is based on, God, you have my back. I trust you. You didn't do what I thought that you were going to, but you still came through. I don't know what you're up to, but I trust you. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through this, but I trust you. That is the absolute basis of the relationship that he wants for you and for him. And so what that means for us then is this, that it means that spiritual growth is never, ever just about knowledge. It's not just about knowing stuff, but moving into an experience of yes, I can stand upon what he says, dad's going to pick me up from school. And I sit in the, te- the tension of I'm not sure if he's going to arrive yet. And when he does, eventually, a reaffirmation of that confidence and that trust in him. God wants you to live in that tension because that's the basis of the relationship. And that's the issue, isn't it? That's the issue. Because for all of us, and particularly if you're someone like a heap of people that we see coming through this place, that people have been hurt by people, more importantly hurt by God, even more importantly hurt by the church. People, people have been part of churches and part of places and you're coming back and you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm going to give this one last shot. and you know, I'm, I'm going to try once more and if I, if I pushed you on it and I asked you, well, what's the issue? The issue is not going to be whether or not you feel that this place is theologically sound or it's not going to be whether or not at the deepest levels you like the music or not. Fundamentally for you as to whether you engage with a relationship with God is, can he be trusted? Somewhere along the line, because of a church or someone or something in circumstances, you equated that with God not showing up to pick you up from school. And you've written him off. 
And you're in this deep tension of saying, how do I know that I can trust him again? How do I know that he's going to show up? And so we get into the how this morning. This is, this is the only way I think you can know how, how to understand that he's ultimately in control. Verse 20, 27, Jesus says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Anyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. (laughs) In other words, it's the doing that makes a difference. In other words, the simple how of all of this is that you put yourself in an environment that is single-mindedly focused on pushing you towards practiced teaching. And, and this, this is real for us, because I mean this in the, the best possible way. Look, as a pastor, you know, over the years, and it's been true of me and of my predecessor, Graham Agnew, and of Jay Bassick, I'm, I'm so grateful that I've grown up in a church that has been single-mindedly focused on practical teaching. First and foremost, you'll, get, you, you'll have people that have either here or come through this place and said, you know, do they, do you, do they always preach like that? You know, like we, we're, we're like 10 minutes into the sermon and he's only just used the Bible verse. You know, what's, what's the deal? You know, and I need to get stepped through this. And the, I used some Greek at the beginning. Right. <laughs> Is it like, you know, I'm used to verse one, therefore. What does therefore mean? Right? Now, I'm being facetious, and please know my heart in this. Look, there are a lot of beautiful and amazing churches out there that teach like this. But know for us at least, we are single-mindedly focused on being practical teachers and pushing you into practiced teaching, mainly because my favourite teacher, Jesus Christ, was the most practical teacher you'll ever hear. There's a great story where he gets into a big fight with a legal dude and they're having a few wines over dinner, and, um, and they start arguing about eternal life, and he tells this story about a good Samaritan walking down the road, the enemy of the lawyer, and, and the story goes on for about two to three minutes, well, at least does if you read it, but I'm sure it went over the dinner table like that. And how does Jesus end that story? He says to the guy, who was the one who showed him, uh, who, who, was, who was the one that loved their neighbour? And the teacher of the law said, oh, it was the one that showed him mercy. And does Jesus stop the story there? No, class. What does Jesus say? Now go and do likewise. So you will always find a teacher in Jesus that's single-mindedly focused to practice teaching because it's the doing that makes the difference. And we're unapologetic about that. And that's why, guys, we talk about circles always being better than rows because you can't change here on a Sunday just by turning up any more than a Volkswagen will become a Porsche by sitting in the garage for the next 20 years. (laughs) You have to move yourself into environments, primarily circles in this place, where you are encouraged and pushed to live out what you learn. That's my single application point for the whole message. Proof in the point. Because it's, it's not how many verses that we get through here. There is no greater verse than anyone who puts these words of mine into practice is like a wise person that builds their house upon the rock. Because all the words are there available for you for free. They're online too, by the way, if you'd like them, for free. Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so we will always be a place 
that sees one of the core elements of our Christian walk and will continue to do so. The core pillar is practiced teaching. That's how you grow in your faith. That's how you become a person that can cope. And so out of that then, what that means for us too then is you have to start wrestling through then what's your view of Jesus in all of that. And what I mean by that is do you just see Jesus as someone who is an advisor or an authority over your life? Because if Christianity is just one of another of uh, multiple points of information that are streaming into your life, you know, you've got the stocks on the iPhone, uh, you've got a little bit of relationship advice that's coming from another online iBook, and then you've got the Bible. You know, if Jesus is just another advisor into your life, it's not going to work that way. Jesus says, I'm not an advisor, I'm your coach. When he says, put these words into practice, what he's saying is, I am the ultimate life coach. I'm the ultimate sports coach. You don't come to a sports coach and say, you know what, coach, you're the best in the world. In fact, I've seen you. You've, you've trained five Olympic champions before me. I want to come under you, coach. I want to be a part of your coaching regime. So now can we sit down in the lecture room and discuss the mitochondrial reactions of the cells in the upper bicep? <laughs> what do you reckon the reaction of the coach is going to be? It's not what I do. Doing's what I do. And if you come under my coaching, you're here to do, not listen, not learn. It's so real for all of us. We struggle with anger. We struggle with bitterness. We struggle with mouthing off. We struggle with fear. We struggle with anxieties. That's just my list for this week. Every time we come into this context, it's an opportunity for us to take our lives back under the most master coach. And most importantly then, if that is the case, if God wants to enter into a relationship of trust with, trust with you, trust me, I'll pick you up after school. And then as a function of that, we are constantly moving into environments where we live what we learn and we walk out what it is that he is teaching us. Then ultimately that obedience, which is important, by the way, could be a whole other story now is an expression of the beauty of that trust rather than a duty. Do you see the difference? When, when a child chooses to hold the hand of their parents, even though they've got no idea the difference between a Mazda and a Mack truck in front of them, the choice to hold the hand says, I don't know what's going out here, mum or dad, but because of who you are, huh? And because of my knowledge and my experience of you, I act on the basis as a reflection of, as an outpouring of that obedience, uh, of that trust relationship that I have with you. Their obedience is a reflection of what they think. Our doing is always an overflow of our thinking. And therein lies the challenge for you and I. Because when we don't walk this out, Jesus is wonderful at narrowing us down to this point where it's either or. We either, we either are walking this stuff out or we're not. You can debate all you want when you're in a lecture room. But when you're under the mastery of the coach and you, you either can or can't do that rep of that bench press because you haven't put the work in. And for us, or for me at least, I'll preach to myself, the fear, the anxiety, the anger, the lack of self-control, all of this stuff is not condemnation for me. It's just a reminder that I'm a little faith. And there's just a little bit more room to grow. And so that's why, as we finish this morning, he says this. 
If anyone who's, uh, who hears these words of mine puts them into practice, if they, and, who, and who hears these and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish person who builds their house upon the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew against the house and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, there's the coach, and not as one of their teachers of the law. Here's what we're getting at. All of the Sermon of the Mount comes down to this particular principle, and it is true for all of us this morning. All of the Sermon of the Mount, you'll see this through and through and through, all of the illustrations. But what Jesus is saying to us in this moment is this. That before me this morning is a couple of hundred people and everyone is building. Everyone is building a foundation for their life. And when you see the subtlety of the Sermon of the Mount and what is so clever about this illustration is everyone is building, but you, none of us can see what. Foundations are what? Hidden. And so Jesus says to all of us this morning that there's a whole bunch of little faiths and none of us can see what either of us are building yet. Until the point where the rains came down and the floods came up. I just thought, I was just itching to sing that. You will only never know, you'll never know what any of us here are truly building until the rains come down and the floods, when the storms of life hit you. And for many of us as brothers and sisters, don't we know the pain that it is to see many of those who have fallen and who have crashed over the years? People that we thought were fervent for God, people that we thought had it all worked out, people that we thought looked like the model Christian and the minute that the storm came, they crashed. So Jesus' point to you this morning, application point, is, is really simple. His words are like paint. Right? The value of this stuff is not in its colour. The value of this stuff is not um, how much you mix it up. A lot of people think that if you come to a church, we get a preacher to stir you up for a little bit. And you feel that if you've come to church and he says something really profound and he shakes you up a bit, he mixes you a bit, then, then you've had a really good Sunday. <laughs> the value of paint is only ever achieved when you apply it. And so I try and do all I can every, every Sunday to help you understand just the value that you have in this thing. There is a wealth of stuff that could change your life. My job is to point that out to you to bring out its beautiful colours and the ways that it could look in your life. You could continue the analogy. But the point being, each of you have a brush to go and apply this today, to apply this to your marriage, to apply this to your workplace, to apply this to your emotions, to apply this to your fears and your anxiety. None of this means diddly squat and you've wasted a whole Sunday morning if we do not walk this out. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish person building their house upon the sand. Friends, you need to storm-proof your life because Jesus understood the question, little faiths, the question that is at the front of your mind before you walked in these doors, can I cope? And he says, yes, you can. If you walk my ways, if you build the way that I instruct you to build And if you trust me in this, 
And he said at the cross as he's come and he's died for us that I won't ever do anything that I won't um, already have done myself. I won't ask you to do anything that's too tricky that I didn't have the gumption to do myself. But he came and he said, the kitchen was a mess. Forget all of this obedient stuff. We've just got to work on the trusting. Trust me with that. Walk that out. See what happens. Let's do that this week. Let me pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.